audio check. On this episode, we dive into the details of pharmacy contracting with PBMs, DIR fees. We also get some background on the case that the Supreme Court is going to be reviewing regarding PBM pricing agreements and vital signs coming through e-prescriptions. Yep, we're covering all that today. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to another episode of RX Radio. I'm your host, Richard Waith, and I have a very special guest with me here today, Dr. Benjamin Jolly. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. Good to be here. So uh, we connected at PDS earlier this year, and uh, you just have a, like, you're a, a wealth of information um, about a lot of different things that I'm excited to, to dive into today. Um, but before we get into that, let's, uh, let's start by just telling the listeners a little bit about yourself. Sure, yeah. Um, so... Benjamin Jolly, PharmD, graduated from pharmacy school two years ago at St. Louis College of Pharmacy. Um, I've worked in pharmacy, though, since 2004 um, as a clerk, technician, delivery driver, intern, whatever. Um, So I have a little bit longer experience than uh, you'd expect from the fact that I graduated pharmacy school only in 2018. and um, so I work as a staff pharmacist for my dad. He owns um, Jolly's Compounding Pharmacy in Salt Lake City, where I work. And uh, I, I manage the store and try to keep it afloat. Um, it's, this is the third generation of our family in pharmacy. Oh, nice. Um, my grandpa started the family business in 1954 on June 7th, actually. Um, so our family business is 65 years, uh, going strong. Um, in addition to that, uh, I've started a consultancy for independent pharmacies, um, who are trying to understand DIR fees and generic effective rates and all of these other, um, myriad issues with, uh, PBM contracting that most folks just sort of throw up their hands and say, what the heck is going on? Um, I try to give some clarity and help folks regain some control, sense of control over their lives with regards to that. So first of all, that's pretty awesome that you're in a, you know, a third generation, you said third, right? Third generation, um, Mm -hmm. you know, pharmacy. I mean, that's amazing. Uh, it's, I'm wondering how much it's evolved, um, you know, since back then. I, I would be curious to know if uh, maybe we can, you know, later on, maybe we can dive into what that evolution may may have looked like um, over over those three generations. But um, but I do want to get it's into changed. Yeah. So I mean, if you want to uh, just touch a little bit on that, that'd be uh, you know interesting to hear about if if you can. Sure. Like I'll give you the two minute rundown there. Um, so when my grandpa started the business, um, one prescriptions were a lot less common. And, um, like th- there were a lot fewer prescriptions written at the time. Um, there were effectively no prescriptions that were manufactured. Um, like the first few medications that were manufactured by a large company were starting to come out at that time. Um, the Kefauver Harris amendments had not passed yet. Um, so 
like refills weren't a thing yet um, when my grandpa started working. (laughs) Like (laughs) when I think about just that little piece, it's fascinating. Um, Pharmacies didn't use computer systems yet. Um, My grandpa got the first computer system for the pharmacy in the late seventies. It was a gigantic uh, computer that took up about the size of a whole room um, and cost something on the order of $20,000 or something. Jeez, that's crazy. Um, Which at the time is an enormous amount of money. Um, And my dad has described to me um, when he was little, he would have to go down and uh, make the backups of the computer, which were these... uh, gigantic like like imagine a film roll um it's this gigantic magnetic tape um he said it was about three feet across um (laughs) so those are the backups but like it it's also just like when people started doing refills um after after the federal law changed allowing it um if you did not have the prescription number for someone, it was nigh impossible to um, get their prescriptions uh, like refilled. The, the best way to do it would just be to call the doctor. Um, in <laughs> fact, because like if you didn't know the prescription number, you're not going to go file. You're not going to go sort through all of your prescriptions. Mm-hmm. and just say, okay, I don't know where it is. Maybe it was on this day. I'll go flip through all 100 prescriptions from that day. Oh, here it is. Now we'll refill it. Now, it'd be faster to just call the doctor. Um, around the same time, um, a pharmacy hero of mine, uh, Eugene White, actually, for the same reason, invented what we now call the patient profile where you have like, you know, patient demographics, family information, allergies, um, medication history, and a list of all of the prescriptions that they're currently taking. And he did this on index cards that he would file by patient name. Um, and then when someone wanted to come in and refill a prescription, he would just go pull out their index card and say, okay, Mrs. Jones, it looks like uh, it was this prescription number. And then he'd go pull that prescription number out of his files. Um, anyway, that's, and also there were no PBMs. There was, there there was no insurance coverage. Everything was cash pay. Um, my grandpa, um, actually most of his revenue came from, he also operated a bookstore in the same location. Um, so that, that's, and like I said, everything was effectively compounded. And so he had to know a lot more about where drugs came from. Like, uh, you know, instead of just going and ordering digoxin, you go get some digitalis, crush it up and use that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so (laughs) it's interesting that you mentioned the, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned the bookstore thing though, because I feel like now pharmacies are are almost in a position where they're being forced to think about other revenues again. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm wondering if we're getting to the time where we need to start going back to those type of times back then where we had these other, you know, interesting streams of revenue that didn't necessarily have anything to do with medications. Yeah. I mean, to some degree, yes. Um, Like, I will tell you, with coronavirus being a thing right now, um, 
we've closed our front end. And so all of those ancillary revenues are pretty much uh, zero at the moment because mm-hmm. no one walks in the store to go buy some books or buy some random gift stuff at the moment. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, yeah. All right. So, uh, so let's go back into the, towards where we really wanted to have the conversation about. Uh, so sure. about contracting, uh, DIR, GER. I mean, you know, if you looked at your LinkedIn profile, there's a bunch of different acronyms that you help pharmacies out with, but for people that have no idea what this is, can you, can you just give us a little bit of a background, um, into what these acronyms are? Sure. So they're all scam made up by PBMs. Long story short. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But there's the, there's the five second answer. The longer answer is, so DIR is a Medicare term. Um, invented by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services in, I believe it was 2009, they published the final rule that contained it. Um, it, it. It is an acronym that means direct and indirect remuneration. And it refers to any money that a Medicare Part D plan receives outside of premiums and payment supports from the federal government. Um And the reason that they put this rule in place is because they wanted to know um, about all of the uh, formulary rebates that the Part D plans were receiving from pharma companies, um, which are substantial. Um, I mean, today, your average brand name drug has a a discount off of the list price or the AWP of like 50% after you account for the rebate. which is insane. And so Medicare wanted to have, you know, good numbers of what their contracted Part D plans were spending after all of these rebates, because if, if you spend a hundred dollars, but then you get a $50 rebate back, Medicare wants to know about that. Um, cause they don't want to say, Oh, well you just spent way more than all of your premiums. Um, how did you stay in business? I'm, I'm confused. Um, anyway, so they wanted to capture these rebates and they also wanted to capture any other kinds of, uh, price concessions or other, uh, funds that Medicare D plans had received from other players in the, in the drug channels. Um, say that's, uh, a, um, say they sued a patient who lapsed in paying their premiums uh, or they sued or they audited a pharmacy and recouped funds for fraud or they settled a lawsuit um, with a pharmacy over network termination or something like that and they got funds from that all of those are captured in dir um, but one of the uh, so this is that it included a rule or included in the definition of DIR, um, any price concessions from pharmacies. And um, Medicare also has a rule called uh, the definition of the negotiated price, which is a very important term in Medicare. It's the basis of what the patient's copay is. It's the basis of how much the patient's uh, total out of uh, true out-of-pocket cost accumulates um, and the basis of how much money this person spends so that they um, progress through the deductible phase, through the initial coverage, through the donut hole, and into the catastrophic phase where the government picks up the tap. Um, the negotiated price in its definition says that um, 
it has to be inclusive of anything that can't be predicted or that can't that can be predicted reasonably at the point of sale. And so when you bring those two concepts together, you get what is what what is now called a DIR fee by every single pharmacy in existence. Um, the the pharmacy price concession and the fact that you have to have some kind of fee that can't be predicted at the point of sale. Um, <clears throat> and so what the PBMs and the Part D plan sponsors have done is created a um, basically pay-to-play scenario where if you want to <clears throat> participate in their large Medicare D plan, um, you, the pharmacy, have to pay to the plan after the fact some kind of uh, payment. It's often a certain plans have a flat dollar amount per claim. That's a participation fee, basically. Um, and certain plans have a percentage of what they pay you. Um, and it's different for every single Medicare D plan that charges these fees. And so um, the, the important thing to grasp, though, is that this is enormously profitable for the Part D plan because they're able to uh, – they're able to have the member, the patient, pay a higher copayment because, say, we have a negotiated price of $100 for a product. The patient's liability is therefore going to be 30% of whatever the negotiated price is. So they need to pay out $30 to get this $100 product. The plan will pick up 70%. However, um, one of the most egregious contracts out there right now states that the plan will then collect from the pharmacy out of future payments um, between 29 and 31 percent of the gross uh, of the negotiated price um, for this product as a fee for participation and since they since it's between 29 and 31 percent they don't know how much of it, how much is going to be taken at the point of sale. And so it, it's not part of the negotiated price anymore. Um, and then the difference between that 29% and that 31% is how the pharmacy does on various um, performance measures, which are also large money to the plan. Um, like if you perform very well on your adherence measures like lisinopril, people taking it every day, atorvastatin, people taking it every day, and metformin, people taking it every day, and other drugs in those same classes. Um, the plan can stand to get literally billions of dollars in um, performance payments from the federal government. Um, and in addition, if they perform exceptionally well, they can actually market their plan all year long. And so that 2% differential between the 29% and the 31% is, uh, is basically if you, if your pharmacy performs very, very well, we'll only take 29%. If your pharmacy performs very, very poorly, we'll take 31%. Now that sounds insane either way, but that's how they justify not including that 
um, discount in the negotiated price at the point of sale. And the negotiated price also, I'll point out, is what's transmitted to the pharmacy when you bill a claim, you get back a claim response that says, paid claim, we're going to pay you $100. You $30 of that will come from the patient, $70 will come from us. They don't anywhere in the claim response identify that this is going to have 30% of that money on the average taken back from you. And so um, the only way that you know that is if you've read your contract or if you um, pay very close attention when your checks are actually cut. When the checks are cut and the uh, payment file comes back from the PBM saying, we're paying you uh, $100, they'll also say, and we're actually taking $30 as a fee for you participating in the network, thanks. Um, but they don't tell you that at the time that you're dispensing. They tell it to you several months down the line so or a month down the line. I have a quick question. So a DIR fee, uh, in, in what you know most pharmacies consider what, what that particular fee is, uh, just to clarify, are you saying that it's always between 29 and 31% of the cost? That is for one particular Medicare Part D plan. Oh, okay, gotcha. I understand. Um, so that so, can vary drastically between plans. Oh, yeah. I mean, okay. th- there's one plan that charges $5 a claim. Gotcha. Um, okay. Which could be like more than 100% of the cost for certain very cheap generics, or it could be like 1% of the cost or 0.1% of the cost for like Humira. Um, so there's there's very different DIR fee structures. And so it's so for most pharmacy owners and pharmacy managers, it's it's very confusing what they're looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, what I offer with um, but what what I offer folks with my consulting business is basically most commercial pharmacy software right now um, has the capacity to um, program in these fees if you know what your contract says. Where most pharmacies use a pharmacy services administrative organization or PSAO, um, it's so long as you know what PSAO someone's in, it's very predictable what fee structures they're going to have because the PSAO signs the contract for all of these different plans. And so I can just go, as long as I know what PSAO someone's with, I can then go into their software and say, okay, this planet's going to be 10%. This planet's going to be 15%. This planet's going to be $5. This planet's going to be uh, 2% of AWP. And then what their software will do is then just adjust for that at the time they're dispensing the prescription. And so when they go build the claim, they'll know beforehand, before they sell the drug, that they're going to have 30% of the cost taken away from them or, or $5. Mm-hmm. And then they can make a rational business decision after that. Um, one of the things that really infuriated me when I started doing this is my very first client, um, I put fees into her system for her and she had been filling a incredibly expensive medication every month for a patient. This medication is called Lysanda. It's a fentanyl nasal spray. Its um, cost to her was $29,000. When she billed the plan, they came back with, we'll pay you $30,000. And then 
she had a 10% fee of the $30,000 taken back from her every time the check was cut. Wow. You can do the math there. She thought she was making $1,000. They were taking $3,000. She was losing $2,000 every month that she filled that prescription. And what's crazy about that cost is like, you know, $2,000 a month. I mean, that could be that could be your whole cost of your pharmacy software, like to operate exactly. the pharmacy. You know, like that's insane. It, it, exactly. Like that, that, that is, it, it's just bonkers. Yeah. <laughs> And, and that's just one prescription. And so anyway, so once she knew what was happening there, she had the choice of she had the ability to know what was happening and could then act accordingly. And so in her case, she chose to uh, inform the patient that she couldn't source the medication anymore because she sure couldn't for twenty seven thousand um, dollars. And so instead, the patient is now getting that medication at Walgreens. That's the worst case scenario for me of how to handle this. My preference is that folks try to go find an alternative medication that they can source at a reasonable price that they get reimbursed fairly for um, after accounting for these fees. Um, But until someone knows what these fees are, they're just operating in the blind. Yeah. And... So they're just buying drugs and selling them and hoping that they make money at the end of the day. And it, and like the, 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 what my, what a friend of mine pointed out when I told him that story was that if, if you saw a thousand dollar profit on a prescription every month, um, that's what you thought you were getting. You might go encourage more people to get on that medication. You might try to switch people to that medication and in reality, you're losing two thousand a month, and you're just going to drive yourself very quickly into bankruptcy. Um, so, anyway, that's DIR fees. They're they're fun and they're infuriating, and they should not be legal. Um, because I, I, I don't think I, I made this point terribly clear. If if a patient's copayment is thirty percent of the negotiated price. And the negotiated price is $100. The patient pays 30 bucks, But then the plan goes and gets $30 back from the pharmacy. Then the patient's copayment was not 30%. Right? It was $30 over $70. That's 45% of the total cost. Mm-hmm. And that is not fair to the patient who signed up for this plan, expecting that they would be paying out 30% of the final cost. And one, it's not, not fair to the patient. Two, it's obviously not fair to the pharmacy, who is now potentially losing money. And three, it's absolutely a scam on the federal government because if someone's negotiated price for all of the medications they receive hits a certain point, then the federal government has um, a what's called a reinsurance backstop for the plan where basically – if a patient exceeds, I think this year it's $9,000 in total cost, um, then the federal government picks up 95% of every dollar spent after that point. The plan picks up, um, sorry, 90%. The plan picks up 5% and the patient picks up 5% of the cost after that. 
And so the plan at that point is rolling in the money because every single prescription that's filled, if they're collecting 30% from the pharmacy, then the federal government's paying 90, uh, like say a hundred dollar drug again, the federal government's paying the pharmacy 90 patients paying the pharmacy $5. The plan is paying the pharmacy $5 and then they're collecting $30 from the pharmacy. That's just not right. Um, that's not how this should work. Plans, Part D plans should not be able to profit off of these financial engineering schemes. They should be able to profit by offering a better product at a better premium. That's it. That's not what they're doing. They're just gaming the system. And so, it bugs me. <laughs> a lot of times, a lot of times pharmacies, um, it seems like they are concerned about not knowing what the fees are like. I mean, I feel like I've seen that often where, you know, like they, they don't, they don't know what the fees end up being, um, at some point. So, um, why does that happen generally? Like, why is it that they're, they're not able to make that prediction? Well, cause either a, they haven't seen their contracts because they just, signed up with a PSAO and they never asked, um, what are the DIR fees for this plan? What, what are the DIR fees for all the plans that I'm contracted with? How do I make a good choice of which plan I should encourage my patients to go on? Like you can, you can encourage people to go on different plans so long as it's beneficial for the patient. Um, but when you're thinking through that, if you don't, know what kind of DIR fees are going to be collected from you. Um, then you might encourage someone to go onto a plan that is going to be incredibly unfavorable for the pharmacy um, to the point where you're losing money. I mean, I had a patient um, a couple of years ago who we thought based on the adjudicated price at the point of sale that we were making $2,000 a year on. It turns out that after all of the fees were accounted for, we had actually lost $3,000 by serving this patient and filling 300 prescriptions for her. We'd lost $10 every time we filled a prescription. Mm -hmm. Like, that's insane. Yeah. But isn't there a ton of plans that a pharmacy would have to, like, know what the different DIR fees are for them? Right. I mean, it, it, yes. But that, that's the point of what I do for folks is I, I can go log into someone's pharmacy software put in all of these fees for them and then they know, um, then they know ahead of time what's happening. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. So what yeah. about a PSAO? Now, when do you like, do you recommend every pharmacy get into one of the, uh, like utilize a PSAO or what are your thoughts in general around those? Well, we don't, um, we, we did until January, but, um, this year we decided to, to leave our PSAO and go, go it alone, try and contract with every PBM by ourselves. Um, we decided to do that because, um, <clears throat> because of the second acronym that I mentioned, the generic effective rate. Um, I do not like the concept of a generic effective rate. I think it's a scam and it, it makes sense for a chain pharmacy to sign such a contract, but for, a group of little small pharmacies, it makes very little sense to me. So you definitely um, have to back up and tell us what that is. <laughs> sure. So 
a so okay so basically at this point so a, a PSAO I guess I'll define that first um, a PSAO is effectively a chain headquarters for a independent pharmacy you get like say 5,000 independent pharmacies together you have them contract as a group with a PBM um, in theory you would think that means that they can get better terms out of the PBM because there's you know 5,000 of them rather than just one yeah or two or five or ten whatever um, so you'd think that they should be able to extract better terms out of the PBM and in a lot of regards they are um, since we've gone direct our dispense fees per prescription have gone down our upfront reimbursements per prescription have for the most part gone down. Um, but what we don't have anymore is this massive variance in our payments that happens between April and March of every year. Um, and so there's, so basically, um, Chain pharmacies and PBMs and PBMs and their clients, employers and uh, Medicaid plans and so forth, um, use a concept called a generic effective rate to basically make sure that the PBM can't reimburse the pharmacy basically nothing. Um, because the, the traditional model of pharmacy pricing for generic drugs, which is like 90% of all prescription transactions, is that the PBM sets um, sets a payment logic that will pay the pharmacy the lowest of three numbers, one being the negotiated um, contracted rate, which is typically some kind of discount off of the average wholesale price of the medication. Um, so that might be a discount of 25% or 50% or whatever off of the off of the average wholesale price of the medication. Um, that's number one. Number two is the pharmacy's um, usual and customary charge for the medication. And number three is a proprietary list of um, costs for drugs called a maximum allowable cost. Each PBM develops these costs theoretically based on market surveys of what the drug's supposed to cost in the market. Um, but, and so today something like 90% of prescriptions are filled with generics and probably 90% of generics are paid for under Mac logic. And so they're basically the PBM can pay the pharmacy whatever they want. Um, so if, if the PBM thinks that a drug costs five cents a tablet, they'll pay the pharmacy five cents a tablet plus a dispense fee of a dollar. Um, if they think it costs $2 a tablet, they'll pay the pharmacy $2 a tablet plus the dollar dispense fee. Um, and so the pharmacy makes money by capturing spread between that MAC price and whatever price the pharmacy can source the medication at because a dollar doesn't cover the pharmacy's cost of doing business. Um, the, the dispense fee is just a, just a nice it's little it. extra. <laughs> okay. It, it's, it's not actually enough to cover anyone's cost of doing business at all. Um, in fact, some PBMs don't pay a dispense fee at all anymore. It's lovely. It means that your value as a pharmacist is exactly equal to the value of the pills that you put in bottles. Um, That's crazy. Plus no fee, um, at least in terms of how the PBM views you. Um, anyway, so 
But the the problem with Mac pricing as as a concept is that the PBM that there's no floor. You, you the PBM could just drop the price to a penny a tablet for everything if they so felt like it. Um, most most states have laws that state that it has to have some kind of uh, tie to the real life marketplace. Um, so basically, if you are getting reimbursed a penny per tablet, but it costs you a dollar per tablet, you can submit invoices to the PBM and say, hey, what the crap, pay me at least a dollar a tablet so that I'm not losing money on this prescription. Mm-hmm. Um, and under most state laws, the PBM has to respond within a certain period of time. They have to update their price, their, their Mac lists at least once a week. But in practice... Um, you can submit these Mac uh, appeals, as they're called, all day long. And the PBM will just say, pay to contract, whatever. Even though the state law may say they have to provide a wholesaler and an NDC at which you could buy this drug at their Mac price or lower, in practice, they don't. Um, They just ignore you because they don't care. Um, and they'll just respond with paid contract and just completely ignore it. And they'll just keep paying you the same crappy rate. Um, so a lot of pharmacies actually have just stopped submitting these appeals. Um, anyway, since there's no floor, um, pharmacy services, administrative organizations and chain pharmacies, um, used a, a different kind of logic to try to make sure there was a floor to their payments. Um, a generic effective rate, it means that the PBM will pay the pharmacy at a minimum, um, a certain discount off of AWP and no less, um, across all of the generics they dispense. So basic, your typical contract terms today are somewhere around AWP minus 80 ish percent. Um, is what the is what the generic effective rate will be between the PSAO and the PBM, and so if the which means that the pharmacy can stand to make a lot of money if they understand how this works, and they understand um, what and their PSAO gives them the benefit of of prescriptions that they dispense. Um, because that means that if you dispense an item that has a hundred dollar AWP, then the PBM owes you twenty dollars every time, regardless of what their MAC price is, regardless of what they transmit on the claim, they owe you twenty dollars. Um, so basically, under a generic effective rate, the transmitted price is a nice fiction. They'll pay it to you next month, but then six months down the line, they'll say, "Oh well, we uh, we paid you well above the." contracted generic effective rate. So we're going to recoup half of that money. Say they paid you 40 bucks. They're going to say, no, well, actually you owe us $20 out of that. And so if you're able to source that drug at less than $20, fantastic. If you're not, well, that sucks. Um, And so you, the pharmacy are incentivized to um, find the, the, drug in a drug class with the absolute highest AWP um, that has the lowest possible cost relative to that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That that means that, like, if you can find 
an item that instead of having a hundred dollar AWP and costs you ten dollars, has a thousand dollar AWP and costs you a hundred dollars. Well, you just made your margin go from ten dollars to a hundred dollars on that prescription. And so, anyway, um, I I did not particularly like the concept of this because that is. It's a genius move on the part of the PBM because it aligns the pharmacy's interest with those of the PBM. Um, because a lot of pharmacists, um, particularly independent pharmacists, think that when they find some kind of loophole where they're able to make a ton of money by billing, I don't know, some scam drug like Duexis or something, um, then the PBM gets hurt. That's not the case at all. Um, the PBM just passes on the costs of whatever you bill to them to their client, who's probably a car dealership in your town. And so you're not really hurting Express Scripts in St. Louis or Caremark in Rhode Island. You're not hurting them at all. You're hurting Joe's Crab Shack down the street from you. And, and Joe's not very happy with you because his employee got Duexis instead of Omeprazole. Um, but the PBM is incredibly happy because, well, when you go from uh, a $10 spread on this $100 AWP to a $100 spread on this $1,000 AWP, well, they also go from a $10 spread on that $100 AWP to a $100 spread on the $1,000 AWP. Because while they'll pay you $200 and they're paying you at AWP minus 80%, they're going and billing the employer at AWP minus like 70%. And so every time you play their game, you're going and making the PBM more money. Yeah. Um, so they love this. It's, it's phenomenal for them because it means that they don't have to worry about, um, uh, about going outside of their contract with the employer because they just say, well, um, I'll just make sure that there's a spread between what the contract rate with the employer is and what the contract rate with the pharmacy is, and then I'll just lock in a 7% profit on every transaction. Hmm. It's, so, it, it's an incredibly genius plan on their part. Yeah. So I feel like most of the conversation so far has been, you've, you've along the way just really pointed out a lot of things that pharmacies do wrong in contracting, but I definitely still wanted to ask the question and keep it open. Like, um, maybe what what else are pharmacies mostly doing wrong with their contracting and like what other ways can you can you help them? Sure. Um, so honestly, most PBM contracts are pretty one sided. Um, the PBM is going to offer you a contract. You can try and change the terms if you want. They'll pretty much always turn you down on your on any red lines that you offer. Um, but to me, um, there are substantial benefits to contracting on your own rather than as part of a PSAO. The primary one is that you are the person who's contracting. So you have access to the terms of your own contract. So you know what's happening where when you're with a PSAO, you may not know what the terms that your PSAO agreed to on your behalf are. Um, I was infuriated when I found out that, a PSAO who happens to be associated with a wholesaler um, sends an average weekly price file to a PBM as part of their agreement of 
what they sell to the pharmacies at. Wow. That, like that was, to me, that was just a moment of utter betrayal um, when I discovered that. And I was like, okay, this is, I'm, I am done with this whole concept. If you're going to go and if you're going to tell the person who pays me how much I'm paying you for the drug so that they can set my payments at exactly my cost, we're done. Like that, that's insane. But there's probably um, some more transparent, maybe PSAOs, and maybe some that don't engage in that. So that that could have just been sure. like one particular organization. Whereas, oh, like sure. there might still be some benefits uh, to going with the PSAO, though. Oh yeah, I mean, honestly, if I were to go with the PSAO today, um, I would hands down choose PPOK. Uh, just to be clear. Um, and why they, is that? Like, why would you choose they, something like that versus someone else? Okay, so the major PSAOs are ones that are owned by your wholesaler. I think that there are, like, if you don't see the problem with having the person who's selling you drugs also contract with a PBM to determine how much you're going to get paid for drugs, I, I think we need to have a little conversation about um, your logic. Um, but if your wholesaler is the one who's, setting your contracts with the PBMs, then they know exactly how much money you're making and they know exactly how much money they can charge you on every single drug. So they're going to maximize their own payments by raising your prices to be, Oh, right on exactly what the PBM is paying you. They're not your friend. Your, Your wholesaler wholesalers are great and they have little reps for you that are great and help you do your stuff, but those are not your friends. They take you out to lunch. They're not your friends. They are your, they are who you've chosen to do business with, but you need to take everything they say with a grain of salt because they, they are making money on you and you need to make sure that the relationship makes money for you too. Um, because yeah, the, the wholesaler—they're a Fortune 500 company in most cases. And while your rep might care about you because they make money through you, the company as a whole does not care about the fate of your business at all. Yeah. Um, and so, anyway, so I, I highly discourage people from going with a PSAO that is controlled, that, that is owned by their by their wholesaler. There's just a lot of issues there, and I am not okay with that concept. Um, there are other PB, uh, PSAOs as well, um, but PPOK was one that um, I, I'm I'm just impressed with their ownership structure and with their um, approach to contracting. They've chosen not to contract with certain PBMs but they still offer strong advice to their members of what to do with those contracts and to consider like just a couple months ago, they said, well, we we think that you should really consider whether you want to keep this PBM's business um, because they're really going to kill you in terms of your reimbursements. So consider whether you can just cancel that contract entirely because it's probably not worth keeping. Yeah. And to me, that that like, 
that takes balls to say as a PSAO. I have a lot of respect for that position. Um, because honestly, I, I think the same thing, like you, you should strongly consider dropping certain PBMs when the reimbursements drop below a certain point, you should just say, no, sorry, I'm done. But when you're with a PSAO that just signs every contract that comes their way, you don't have that option. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, that, that's that's my reason for saying I would prefer them over most other PSAOs. So, but we we still chose to go alone, and I'm not intending to join any PSAO at this point. So it sounds it sounds so crazy, like the whole contracting part piece of things, and and I just feel like if I'm a if I'm an, if I want to open my own pharmacy, and I mean, it sounds like going with the PSAO makes it that so much easier. But if I decide mm-hmm. not to, like, where do, where does one even start in terms of like, like, how do you even get to engaging and reviewing one of these contracts to to having a PBM consider contracting with you? Like, where does someone even start with that? Sure. So all the PBMs have different criteria for accepting a pharmacy into network. Um. One one PBM requires you to be in business for a year before they'll consider you. And that, that's regardless of whether you're with a PSAO. Um, but honestly, it it's a lot easier than most people think. Like, you just basically go online and look for a PBM's website and look for independent pharmacy contracting. They'll, ha- they'll almost invariably have a form for you to fill out that um, either will be just like a put in your email and your pharmacy identifiers, like your NCPDP number and stuff. And then they'll just send you a contract or sorry, typically they'll send you credentialing forms to say, okay, do you have liability insurance? Are you, um, are you a fraudulent pharmacy? Has your owners been taken off of the, uh, have your owners been added to the OIG list? Like they'll ask you a whole bunch of questions. You answer them. They, Say great, you're accepted. In, you're accepted. Here's a contract. Review it, sign it. And 99% of the time, you can't really make many changes. Like you, you can probably make some cosmetic changes to the agreement, but nothing substantial. Um, unless you are in a particularly rural area where there's no other pharmacies within 20 miles, you can get some substantial changes then. But outside of that, um, you you pretty much just accept what they give you Um, or you don't. It's, it's a heads or tails. It's not a negotiate type thing. Um, And so you just go and ask them for a contract and they say, here you go. And you say, yeah, I guess that looks fine. Sign on the dotted line, send it back to them. And then you're in their network and you start rolling. Um, it's it's honestly not as hard as most people think it is. It does take time. It probably took me um, about 80 hours to get all of our contracts lined up, um, all told, um, at the end of last year and the beginning of this year. And one PBM decided they didn't want to contract with us because we do a lot of compounding. But honestly, that's fine. We weren't actually making any money on that contract anyways. Um, and so that's fewer prescriptions that we're filling and therefore fewer staff members that we need to run those prescriptions that we were basically breaking even on. And so, um, I'd rather run a leanership 
and not play the PPMs games than um, just fill prescriptions because they're there. It's unfortunate, but that's that's where the profession has come is to make money as a pharmacy. You have to choose. You have to fill the right prescriptions, not just more prescriptions. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely definitely crazy times. Um, so when when we had connected in PDS, um, you had mentioned something like some interesting information that you found about transmitting e-prescriptions. Can you dive a little bit into that for us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so back in, um, let's see. So like, basically this time last year, um, I was checking a prescription. Um, and my software had uh, bugged out, wigged out. Um, it happens basically every Wednesday, um, that it will stop displaying e-prescription, like the image of a prescription as it were to me, um, because it's done an update and it doesn't like me anymore. It wants me to close the program, reopen it so that I can see, um, the prescription again and have all the updates be nice and pretty. Um, Anyway, I decided to be stubborn and not close the program and reopen it because I wanted to check the prescription now because it was a waiter, I think. I can't remember. Anyway, and so I decided to – there's – in my software, there's uh, two tabs for e-prescriptions. One is like an image of of like a written-out prescription. The other is the raw data feed that comes from the physician EHR and and from SureScripts. And so I went and I was like, okay, patient, this date of birth, this drug, this quantity, this, because all of those fields are there. It's just in not a very human readable form. It's designed for computers to read. Um, anyway, so I was able to check the prescription, but as I did so, I noticed um, several fields in the prescription that I had never seen before. And I said, where, where is all, what is all this information? Where did it come from? And one of the fields that fascinated me first was, um, what you call it? Uh, they called it, um, observation. Um, and inside of that observation, there was, um, all of this random code and then 140 SB or SBP and then 90 uh, DBP. And I was like, what? Wait a minute. Is that a blood pressure? <laughs> um, and then um, I noticed there's also a height and a weight in there. And um, anyway, then six months. So that, that was the end of that day. I realized that there was information there that I wasn't seeing. Six months later, um, I was putzing around in my system and discovered that I could modify the layout of my uh, e-prescription like image that pops up and I could actually put these fields, height, weight, and blood pressure and the accompanying units onto my prescription. And then I could see them every time it was there. And so I did. And then discovered that about 30% of all of my e-prescriptions at that time weren't then transmitting with a height and a weight and a blood pressure. And so I was like, okay, is this, but is this real data? So I then went and called um, the physician office on a prescription and said, hi, um, I, I'm getting this information. I just wanted to make sure it's accurate. Um, 
can you just tell me what the last recorded height, weight, and blood pressure is for this patient? And it matched exactly. It gives a date. They matched up the dates. So what I found is that um, e-prescriptions from certain um, electronic health records on the physician side will attach the most recent height, weight, and blood pressure to the prescription. Um, That's primarily epic. That's crazy. Um, I then discovered over the next two months after that with some more investigation that this is actually part of the transition to the new e-prescribing standard called um, 2017-071 rather than the old one that was called uh, e-script uh, 10.6. Um, as part of that transition, um, EHRs are required to send height and weight on any pediatric prescription. So any child has to have a height and weight in their prescription. Um, and this standard was developed in 2017, as the name it suggests. Um, Medicare uh, mandated in 2017 that by 2020, um, all EHRs and softwares transition to this new standard. And so basically, right now, every EHR and every software system, if they haven't already done it, is frantically trying to recode their systems to send prescriptions under this standard rather than under the old standard. Um, some are still transmitting with old, old data. Um, thankfully, computers are smart. Um, anyway, and so that that was eye-opening to me. And so I... Um, from that point forward, I was able to see height, weight, and blood pressure for like 30% of my patients. A couple months after that, one of my, one of the health systems in my area updated their software and suddenly I was getting a height and a weight, no blood pressure on every single prescription that I received from that health system. And so that's in around healthcare. They're a very large health system where I am. So that was a, a huge deal. And so all of a sudden, um, I was getting height and weight on about 70% of all of my e-prescriptions that I received and blood pressure still on about 30%. Um, those are pretty much all coming from uh, either uh, Hospital Corporation of America or from uh, the University of Utah Health System. Um, those those two are the ones that I get blood pressures from. Anyway, um, so then using that blood pressure information, I was actually able to identify folks who have had high blood pressure um, that was undiagnosed previously. And so I, for example, I received a prescription for a patient in January for escitalopram, antidepressant, nothing to do with blood pressure. But on it, it recorded the patient's blood pressure as uh, 150 over 100. And so I said, huh, that's interesting. And looked at the patient's profile, no antihypertensives on her profile at all. And so I said, okay, well, hi, Mrs. Jones. Um, so I see that at your clinic visit three days ago, your blood pressure was kind of high. Could I take your blood pressure? And so I took her blood pressure and sure enough, it was still high. And so I gave her physician a call and said, um, hi, Dr. Smith. Um, Mrs. Jones has a blood pressure of uh, this and this. 
um, could we start her on some anti-hypertensive therapy? Physician says, well, that, that was actually really, I was talking to physicians, medical assistant. Medical <laughs> assistant says, okay, well, they'll have to come in for an appointment. So they come in, to, in for an appointment, record a third high blood pressure um, in the office, and then the patient got started on blood pressure therapy. And then we titrated it over the last three months, and now the patient's blood pressure is controlled. Yay. Yeah. I made a difference. That's crazy. <laughs> That's so awesome. Yeah. It's so awesome that we're, we're I mean, the, seeing that at scale, I mean, it's going to be crazy, I think. I know. I know. I'm, I'm super excited. Yeah. Um, and, and like, so I started promoting this concept that like, look, this is here. You can get this information on LinkedIn, on Facebook, in conversations with other pharmacists, in conversations with pharmacy software systems. Look, this information's there. You need to make it obvious and accessible to people and chart it in a structured manner so they can just go review the blood pressure data for a patient. Um, Cause like hypertension was like the very first thing I learned in therapeutics and it's not hard. Any pharmacist can do blood pressure management. Yeah. Especially when it's really, really easy first diagnosed blood pressure. Like, if it's someone who's tried like 15 different antihypertensives, okay, sure, whatever. Maybe you're not the right person to, to figure out their therapy. But like, it is not hard to say, Mrs. Jones needs Olmosartan because her blood pressure is high. Yeah. And Any pharmacist can do that. And it's crazy because how easy it is, yet how much damage it can cause like over time. Like a lot of times it's like the beginning of like a cascade of like, you know, comorbidities. So. Oh, yeah. I mean, blindness, uh, stroke, heart attack, um, renal failure. Like, it's it's this incredibly important disease state that doesn't get very much attention from most of the uh, medical system outside of, like, public health people. Um, because, it, honestly, high blood pressure doesn't pay very well. Um, like most health systems get paid very, very well every time they go do a um, angiogram and then a, uh, you know, quadruple bypass surgery on someone's heart because that person had high blood pressure for the last 10 years. They get paid very well. They get paid, you know, $100,000, $200,000 for that procedure. Mm-hmm. They're never going to get paid $100,000 to manage that person's blood pressure over a 10-year period. It's just not the way the system's designed, unfortunately. And so that means that there's an opportunity for pharmacists who don't necessarily need to have $100,000 for a single patient to do a procedure. You know, I'd be happy with just collecting a, you know, maybe 15 bucks a month um, to make sure that this person's blood pressure is under control and maybe another 10 bucks a month to make sure that their diabetes is under control. If you pay me that every single month, I will happily spend time talking to the, that patient to make sure that they're taking their blood pressure regularly. They're making sure they take their blood pressure medicine regularly. Mm-hmm. And when their blood pressure goes up and they're still taking their medicine, we increase their dose. Um, I, I will happily do that. Like that, That's not hard. I can do it well within my normal day's scope. I, as I'm checking a prescription, I can say, oh, looks like Mrs. Jones's blood pressure went up. Oh, and looks like over the last couple of months it's gone up and, it, and her blood pressure therapy hasn't changed in five years. How about we double the dose of that lisinopril? 
Um, it's not hard stuff, but there's not really a payment model right now for it, but there should be. And I'm trying to get people to pay me for it. Um, so anyway, that's something that I'm really excited about. Yeah, also, well, I think every pharmacist should be trying to figure out a business model to get, you know, to figure out how we can be ahead of the game on this. Because I mean, that's, that's amazing. Even if, even if like, you know, you think about the profitability, the profitability standpoint from like a physician's office, like fine, like you don't deal with it. Like just send me what their blood pressure numbers are and we'll take care of it. You know, like, right. I feel like even that is, uh, I mean, a lot of primary care offices would actually be very interested in working with pharmacies for that exact purpose because, um, while a surgeon in the hospital who does uh, cardiovascular surgery may not be terribly interested in working with you on that point, a primary care office actually might be because their payments are tied to how well controlled their blood pressure of their patients is. Mm. Um, th- there's a, there's a key measure that is blood pressure control. And it says what percentage of your patients has a blood pressure, uh, below one, 140 over 90. Um, and what proportion of patients have, you know, adequate monitoring of their ACEs and ARBs? Like, did you draw a um, panel, uh, you know, a BMP for the person this year? Um, which actually turns out I discovered is a lot of times why physicians are uh, sometimes hesitant to give you refills on that drug that you need to keep your DIR fees low is because they need to have the patient come in and get a BMP so that that patient, so that they meet that quality metric. They also want to meet the adherence metric, but they need to meet the quality metric of, did I monitor the patient adequately? Um, anyway, there's a lot of opportunities for pharmacists and physicians to collaborate a lot more, particularly in a primary care setting Yeah, where you can prevent all of this downstream stuff that happens in tertiary care settings. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's, uh, it's, yeah. that's exciting to think about what the future that's going to look like when we can really all kind of get it together. Um, yeah. All right. So, um, switching topics a tad bit, a little bit back towards the PBM, uh, side of things. Can you give us a recent update on, uh, there's been a lot of talk, especially on social media about a case that was, um, that was either going to be presented to, or was being heard by the Supreme court around, um, pricing agreements. Can you give us a little bit of background and maybe an update, uh, of the status of that? Sure. So, um, I mentioned earlier that uh, Mac prices are basically set by PBMs at whim. Um, basically what happened is about six years ago, um, Arkansas passed a law that said that PBMs have to pay pharmacies at least the cost of the medication. I think it was called act 800, um, which, wow, what a horrible law. You can't do that, said the PBMs. You can't force us to pay you at least what the drugs cost you. That's insane. We'll go out of business. Um, so they sued in federal court and um, got the law um, thrown out under a federal law called ERISA, the Employee Retirement Income Security Act of 1970, um, which its primary function is to make sure that pension plans for employees are properly managed and that the people who manage them don't go and just steal all the money. But it also um, 
pensions also include health benefits for people. And so it said that basically health plans, same thing. If you're running the health plan, you can't steal all the money. You have to act as a fiduciary of the plan, meaning that if things go south, you're personally responsible. Um, and so, but part of that law also states that um, it preempts any state law, meaning that any state law that goes contrary to ERISA in regards to this type of plan is um, defunct, can't can't be enforced. Um, however, the Supreme Court several times has basically said that that preemption could be interpreted incredibly broadly, but it shouldn't be because basically you could you could construct an argument that any law passed by any state ever that has anything to do with insurance at all is a violation of ERISA. But that's insane. But that's basically the argument that the PBMs have made for the last 20 years. Anytime a state comes up with a law that says they have to do something, they just bring out ERISA and a fancy lawyer and say, you can't do this. It's illegal. Um, ERISA means that your law is null and void. Um, anyway, so in, uh, in January of this year, um, the, uh, solicitor general of the United States advised the Supreme court to take the case because the, the federal circuit court had decided that this, that act 800 was in violation of ERISA and the solicitor general put out a brief that said, no, it's not in violation of ERISA and Supreme Court. You need to do something about this because this is insane. Um, you can't just say that ERISA preempts every law ever. And so the Supreme Court agreed to take the case. Um, it was supposed to be having hearings last month, but then coronavirus happened. And so it's been postponed. Mm -hmm. I don't know to when. Um, but anyway, the Supreme Court's hearing the case. And basically what's at issue here is can states write laws that regulate um, payments to pharmacies. Like, can can I, as a, as a state, say, if you want to operate as a PBM in my state, you have to pay pharmacies in my state at least the cost of goods and a reasonable dispense fee. You can't just pay them 50 cents for every single prescription and pretend that that's okay. Um or can I say that a PBM has to be licensed in my state? Do, can I say that a PBM has to do X, Y, Z in my state? That's what's at issue here is can states make laws that regulate PBMs or can PBMs do whatever they want? And anyway, so I'm, I'm hopeful that the Supreme Court will see reason. Um, I mean, the Solicitor General brief was very favorable towards the cause of pharmacy against PBMs. Um, and PCMA, the lobbying organization for PBMs, uh, put out a brief that was just full of crap. Um, it basically just rehashed their greatest hits of, well, any law that ever affects us means that uh, it, it's in violation of ERISA. Um, oh, but that whole fiduciary thing where you're personally liable. Yeah, we're, we, we don't have to worry about uh, being personally liable for anything ever. Um, but anyway, it's it's this battle between like corporate power on the 
for the PBMs versus state power on the part of any given state, whoever wants to regulate them. Hmm. I really hope state power wins. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not like they're automatically putting the PBMs in a place to pay X amount for whatever. It's like, it's just saying, can we make laws to like protect, you know, businesses and pharmacies and things like that. So, right. That's it. Yeah. Honestly, that's it. It it would not, if, if the Supreme court rules in favor of Rutledge, who's the Leslie Rutledge was the, um, or is the attorney general of Arkansas. Um, if the Supreme court rules in favor of Arkansas instead of PCMA, who's the other party to the case, then um, pharmacy will not be saved. It won't, it won't be a magical day where everything suddenly becomes fine and PBMs go out of business immediately. What it will mean is that then pharmacy associations across the country can then go to their legislatures and ask them to pass reasonable laws, which previously had been struck down by um, federal courts multiple times and get the pharmacies paid at a reasonable rate because the current, state of things is totally unsustainable and unfair and um, monopolistic. So how do, and, we, how do we get to a point where we can operate in harmony with the PBM? Uh, like, well, you, what do you envision? And in, in, let's say this law passes or whatever, um, and states can make these laws. What, what do you envision as like the, this is how, this is how it should be. Um, assuming that they're not going to go away, because I'm sure a lot of people would want them to just completely go away, but assuming they're not going to go away, um, you know, what, what does it look like to say, like, this is how it should be like for us to operate as a normal business? Honestly, I don't think that that can happen with the current corporate structure under which the large PPMs exist. I think that the federal trade, uh, commission made a grave error in allowing PBMs to merge together into these gigantic PBMs and then also to merge with pharmacies in the case of CVS and Caremark and with insurers in the case of say Caremark at Aetna or Optum and United Healthcare. Um, I honestly don't think that there's a long-term way that a financially integrated entity like CVS, Caremark, Aetna can coexist with small business pharmacies. Um, I, I think that their financial incentives and their, um, their, like the structure of how their business exists is directly odds with their clients and with, um, pharmacies generally that aren't under their control. And so I, I honestly think that the only way to long-term, um, have independent pharmacies be viable is either A, to duplicate their model and have somehow a financially integrated organization that is a PBM that's in competition with Caremark and then have all of the little independent pharmacies in the country be the equivalent of CVS, where basically if you want if you have this drug card, you have to go to this pharmacy. Um, or we go the opposite direction and we say, well, this is in violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act. You're monopolizing the industry. We're therefore breaking up your corporation into its component parts. I think that those are really the two paths forward, and I really hope it's the latter. Because 
like independent pharmacies can try and start their own PBM all they want, but the, the nature of the PBM business is that incumbency wins. Um, and it's really hard to unseat an Express Scripts and a CVS and an Optum and a Prime from being the PBM for 90% of the country. Mm. Um, they would be much more, uh, it, it would be a much fairer system if they were only allowed to administer the pharmacy benefit. The fact that they own a pharmacy puts them in um, at odds with their clients and it puts them at odds with the pharmacies. If they're only allowed to be a PBM and not a pharmacy, then the interests of the PBM are much more um, aligned with those of the pharmacy and with those of their clients because they're able to <clears throat> then um, say, well, I need pharmacies in my network, so I'm going to pay them fairly. But also um, my clients, I have no incentive to rip off my clients by forcing everyone to mail order at my facility where I'm going to charge them 10 times as much because that, that's the kind of situation that we're in right now is where the PBM model, the PBM business is, they are not a good thing for their client, the employer who's purchasing the benefits from them. And they're not a good thing for the pharmacy who is billing the claims to that plan. Um, the only way that I see around that is to forbid a PBM just based on the monopolistic potential of it, forbid a PBM from owning any kind of pharmacy at all. Yeah. So, or an insurer, frankly, because that's also crazy for several reasons. Well, I'm sure some would say it is all crazy. I mean, it's, it's you know, the most one of the most complicated things that's just so intertwined um, with uh, with what, what appears to be a lot of conflicts of interest. So it's, it's definitely, um, it's definitely crazy. Um, all right. Last question here. If you had to take one person out to dinner and you had the opportunity to do that, anyone in the world, they have to be alive and they have to be famous, but they can't be any of the past, any of the current or past presidents. Who would that person be and why? Hmm. Have to be alive. Darn it. <laughs> I know it gets a lot of people. <laughs> there goes half the people that I was, that yeah. was on my list. They're all dead. Um, let's see. Yeah. Be a president. Anyone I could take out to dinner in the world. Huh? They have to be famous. I'm going to, because you, I feel like you're, I'm really curious as to where your mind would go. If I left it completely open to dead or alive, I'm going to let you pick both. So, but you definitely have to pick one that's alive, but I'm going to let you, I also want to hear who would be the person that, that might have passed, that, that passed away. Okay. Um, honestly, uh, so given my little conversation, my, my little bit there about um, antitrust and stuff, I'm thinking that one of my little antitrust heroes from the past and from alive probably, so I don't want to go out to dinner with. <laughs> to see what they want to talk about. Um, so from the past, uh, Louis Brandeis um, was a judge and a lawyer who basically created um, the wonderful system of antitrust that the U.S. had in place from like the 30s to the late 70s. 
And like, it, it honestly, it was a very, in my view, much, much better functional system than what we have today. Um, and in light of that, I'll, I'll go with probably, um, living people, either Tim Wu, who wrote a book called, uh, the curse of bigness. I, I, I loved that book. It was phenomenal. Or another guy who I subscribe to his newsletter, uh, Matt Stoller, who wrote a book called, uh, big or Goliath, Goliath, the history of antitrust in the United States. Um, honestly, I, I think that I've mentioned all these issues with like market concentration in, in the pharmacy industry. I think it goes way farther than just our industry. Um, I, I think that a renewed focus on antitrust would serve the U S enormously. Um, there's, there's no reason that we need to be dominated by four companies that control the entire country country in any given industry and in some cases those companies then combine like why does disney own fox how is that okay um anyway so those are probably the folks i take out to dinner um kind of weird and out there and you may not have heard of them but they're famous to me no i think it's (laughs) awesome and and what's interesting is i'm actually going to look up those books because i'm I'm curious now to um to listen to the audiobooks of those because i think um if if they're available um i'm I'm in and that's why i like asking these things because i feel like it's just you know it, it, it allows listeners that have never heard of these people to now go look them up um and the reason why i like to ask about people that are alive is because i feel like a lot of times we we don't like kind of um I don't say I don't cherish this whatever, but we don't cherish like the people that are here now today doing things, you know, and seeing that them in action. So that's why I kind of like to hear like the people that are alive, you know, instead of yeah. the ones passed away. Yeah. But um, yeah, so I'm definitely going to include maybe the links of that in the show notes to um, so people, including myself, can uh, can look those up and and um, kind of get in, into your world a little bit from the antitrust space. So um, how can people uh, get back in contact with you and, and if they want to follow up with you after the episode? Sure. Yeah. So I have a email for my consulting. It's just D I R consulting 2019 at gmail.com. Folks can just email me there. Um, I also have a little website where people can just schedule a time to talk to me. Um, it's a uh, calendly, uh, C A L E N D L Y.com. And then uh, slash all lowercase D I R dash F E E S D I R fees. Um, if you go there, you can book a time to talk to me, have me go into your pharmacy system. If you're an independent pharmacy owner and you want me to go, uh, set up your system so that you can see the IR fees ahead of time. Um, that's, that's where you can find me. I emails fantastic though as well. So I'll definitely include all of that, uh, all of that information in the show notes so people can reach out and uh, hopefully you'll get a lot of responses. And um, I do think the the uh, consulting services you provide is probably going to be helpful for a lot of people. So um, thanks for doing yeah. what you do. Uh, Benjamin, thank This was so insightful. Um, th- I hope to have you back on at some point because I feel like there's so much more you can teach us. Um, but thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Yeah, th- thanks for the time to talk to you.
Well, I feel 10 times smarter now in terms of pharmacy contracting after that episode. And I hope everyone enjoyed it. Uh, please make sure to connect on any of your favorite social media platforms. We'd love to hear what you thought about the episode. Subscribe if you haven't yet. Please leave a rating. Um, again, I'm going to include all of Benjamin's contact information in the show notes. Uh, so if anyone wants to reach out to him, they can do that um, there. Thank you so much for tuning in. It really means a lot, especially during the pandemic. I know everyone's routines are just kind of way off. So if you're still listening during this time, um, I really do appreciate it. I hope you're getting some good value out of the content that we're putting out on here. And I hope you have a great rest of your day.